Nurse.com is proud to be a sponsor of the Ask Nurse Alice podcast. As the premier destination for nursing knowledge and resources, Nurse.com supports your passion for healthcare with an unrivaled collection of tools, articles, and courses tailored for the nursing community. Get your daily dose of things you need to know for your nursing journey. Discover the world of nursing like never before with Nurse.com. Empower your practice, advance your career, and enrich your knowledge. Nurse.com. It's your nurse life all in one place. The biggest thing with my first responders that I treat, the biggest thing that I'm seeing is a huge amount of burnout. But above that is compassion fatigue. And compassion fatigue is the cost of caring. Charles Figley, he's a psychotherapist. He wrote a book about compassion fatigue. He spearheaded this term. And it's the cost of caring. It's the cost of caregiving. And it's, it is a cost when you are giving so much of yourself in a professional sphere and not getting it back, obviously to, you're not going to get it back the way you would in a, in a personal one. It, it leads to burnout. It leads to feeling like completely exhausted and emotionally drained, no motivation. And so with that being said, during the pandemic, is when I really got a spike in clients that were needing assistance. And I applaud that, particularly my nurses. Now for my nurses that I saw in hospital settings, I was was seeing them twice a week. You're listening to Ask Nurse Alice, presented by Nurse.org, where Alice Benjamin combines no-nonsense advice with thought-provoking interviews. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Ask Nurse Alice podcast, the show where we talk about anything and everything nursing and healthcare related. I'm your host, Alice Benjamin, clinical nurse specialist and family nurse practitioner and chief nursing officer at nurse.org. And on today's show, I got I want to start with this quote that I found online. Actually, it's a meme on Instagram, and it said anonymous, so I wish I could knew who to give credit to, but I'm not sure. But I, I thought this was a pretty profound quote, and it said, health is a state of complete mental, social physical well-being, not merely the absence of disease or infirmity. Sounds like something the World Health Organization would have said, but still, you know, I think it's very important that we really think of this because we are so focused on our physical health, right? Because it's something that we can visually see. It's objective. There are metrics, there are numbers. You know, we can put our height and weight in and calculate this and we can look at lab values and see these things. And, you know, so our physical health is often what we first see. But, you know, as that quote mentioned, there's the mental and social aspect of our well-being. And that's something that's not always quantifiable. It gets overlooked. It's difficult to measure progress. And it's not something we talk about a lot. And so it's still a very, very important part of our health. And although many of us who are listening are nurses and doctors, you know, paramedics and other frontline healthcare workers and health professionals, we also have a fair share of listeners who are caregivers and, you know, just the general public. And hey, even though we're healthcare professionals, we're consumers too, and we don't know it all. We don't know it all and it's okay. Or we need to be reminded of these things. So in this episode, I want you to sit back and just take this all in because I really want you to, all of us, to be more aware and take more action towards our mental and social health. And although I know a lot, I had to bring on the big dogs. I had to get an expert here with me. She's a licensed professional counselor in Coral Springs, Florida, specializing in individuals, couples, marital counseling, group therapy, and family therapy for those who are 12 and older. And she also has a PhD in conflict resolution and dispute analysis. She's also recently published a book after conducting studies on domestic abuse survivors, 
She helps her community by providing mental health support and services to local officials and first responders. And she's even worked closely with some of the Parkland school shooting survivors by providing them with the necessary treatment and support afterwards. Please welcome Dr. Michelle Finneran. Thank you, Ella. So good to be here. Thank you for having me on. I'm so glad to have you. And first off, I just kind of want to start with, obviously your resume is is long. You've done a lot of things. You've helped a lot of people. You are a psychotherapist. Now, before we get started in the conversation, just kind of for some housekeeping things so people really understand, can you tell us more about yourself and what a psychotherapist is, especially as it, how it differs from a psychologist or psychiatrist? I think that's a, a confusing, these confusing terms, psychiatrists, psychologists, psychotherapists, mental health therapists, and social workers are, they're very much in the same field, but they do different things within the field. So with that being said, let's start with who I am. I am a mental health therapist. I'm a licensed mental health therapist, meaning I had to take a state license and I had to get certified in the state of Florida to counsel by the Department of Health by Tallahassee, the capital. So I am licensed and that's that's the way I can open my practice and have a practice, not through the PhD, but through the license. You have a psychiatrist who is in the mental health field. He, The psychiatrist, he or she went to medical school. They prescribe medications. They do an evaluation. Typically, they spend about 15, 20 minutes in a session and just talking about medications. They talk about the side effects. They talk about um, how the medications are making them feel. They talk about long-term effects of the medications. So that's what they do. They don't spend a whole lot of time. They're acclimated to about 20 minutes and just talking about the medications and how it's making them feel. A psychologist is somebody that does talk therapy as well, but their specialization that makes us different from a psychotherapist or mental health counselor is they do actually testing. They do psychological testing. They do the testing. They are able to decode the test and write up an evaluation based on the results of a test. So that's something that's a little bit different that I do not do. I do not prescribe medications and I do not do testing. So that's, those are two things. What I do is I do straight talk therapy with therapeutic intervention and modalities. So a mental health therapist is kind of interchangeable with a psychotherapist, kind of like the same thing. I really focus on the, the treatment modality and in order to see results, a lot of mental health and wellness, you don't have the tangible results as you see a, seeing a psychiatrist or a psychologist. I want to make sure, because I'm a researcher as well, I want to make sure I see the results and I, and I get that by examples that clients tell me that what works, what de- doesn't work, and we modify it accordingly. Now, like a social worker is aligned with mental health therapy and therapists. They more tap into the resources of the community. And they are more community-centered oriented, but they also do talk therapy as well. Now, I'm also a PhD, which I'm not, people get this confused because they think I'm a psychologist, which I'm not. I have a doctorate in in philosophy. Doctorate of philosophy is not something that is licensed. It's something that I had to do a dissertation for. And I didn't need to have the PhD in order to have a practice. I did it because I wanted to, to be more research oriented and more of an academic. So those are kind of the different modalities that people oftentimes get confused with and just some clarification as the different scopes. 
Yes, that was very helpful. And even as an advanced practice nurse, I, that was great. I mean, although I've, I've learned that somewhere, you broke it down in a very easy way for me to understand. And I think that's key because when people are looking for help, I want to make sure you're going to the right resource for help. And, you know, so you don't expect a certain treatment or service from a particular individual and you realize that, no, that was the psychotherapist job, you know, what I would get from a psychotherapist. And then you're not upset when you go see the psychiatrist and they just give you a prescription and say they'll see you in six weeks. Yeah. So a, a psychotherapist, like for a psychotherapist, I see my clients 45 to 50 minutes and we really get into the crux of everything. So a lot of times when I have a client that is really, really struggling and they're seeing a psychiatrist, I will ask the the client to um, sign a written release of information so I can correspond with the psychiatrist so I can provide wraparound services and support for the client and coordinate. A lot of times people in the field, even people in the same field that are doctors or providers, they don't really speak to each other. And I find that to be a very big disadvantage for the client. So if I find a client that's really struggling, I um, make sure that I let them know that I want to contact their psychiatrist so we can provide more, more support, more collaboration and more, you know, more netting and backing for the client. Yes, that's definitely helps to provide a net for the patient. Listen, you're preaching to the choir. Many of us who are listening, who are nurses understand that providers are not always talking to each other. So we're desperately trying to connect the dots, get them to talk because we really, we're all working for the, for the same cause, for the greater good for the patient. So I like Absolutely. how you call that wraparound services. Yes. You know, as a psychotherapist, you, uh, you've worked with a lot of uh, frontline healthcare, healthcare workers or frontline providers. I read in your bio that you've worked with law enforcement, police detectives, firefighters, EMTs, paramedics, nurses. And like, these are all people who, who share the common theme of a, working in a very stressful job where the stakes are high very can be life or death situations, very now, 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 now type of services, and often serving selflessly, even when sometimes their own health and safety are at risk. So I'm just, you know, we're, we're curious to know what have been some of the most common or severe mental health or social issues or disorders that you've seen in this past year, especially as it relates to this group of professions, because I'm in it. Um, a lot of people who are listening are within this group and, you know, we might be feeling something, but haven't kind of stepped out for help because we think that oh, I'm supposed to deal with it. But, you know, what are some things that people are coming to you during this time or what have you seen in this population of people? The biggest, the biggest thing with these, with the first, my first responders that I treat, the biggest thing that I'm seeing is a huge amount of burnout, but uh, above that is compassion fatigue and compassion fatigue is the cost of caring. Charles Figley is the um, spearheaded. He's a psychotherapist. He wrote a book about compassion fatigue. He spearheaded this term and it's the cost of caring. It's the cost of caregiving and it's, it is a cost. You, you, it is a cost when you are giving so much of yourself in a professional sphere and not getting it back. Obviously, to, you're not going to get it back the way you would in a, prof- in a personal one. It, it leads to burnout. It leads to feeling like completely exhausted and emotionally drained, no motivation. And so with that being said, during the pandemic is when I really got a spike in clients that were needing assistance. And I applaud that. 
especially particularly my nurses. Now for my nurses that were, that I saw in hospital settings, I was, was seeing them twice a week in, in sessions because especially my nurse managers who are helping their nurses, I was, I, I, would, I would mandate them to see them at least once a week, sometimes even twice a week to kind of help navigate and motivate their nurses and themselves to kind of do, do what they could with, for their nurses and for the patients. What I was finding is what I was what I what would have boiled down to. There were times where I was just focusing on making sure the nurse got their basic needs met, their basic needs met, making sure that they're sleeping, making sure that they're eating appropriately, making sure that they are resting their bodies. A, a nursing position is whether it's very physical. The thing about the, the psychotherapist is not physical, but a nurse's position very physical, very emotional, very mentally, and very traumatizing. Those things are very important for nurses to understand that you're in a position and a sphere that is thankless and expected, but then your own self-care gets jeopardized and your own basic needs start to become compromised. And I'm talking about basic needs. I'm talking about survival. Now, I'm so glad you mentioned that. Thank you. Because it empowers us to ask for things because I don't know why, but we're so focused on caring for other people. We just kind of tuck our needs away like, oh, bathroom, I'll hold it. I'm gonna go later. Water, I'll do it after I give these meds. Eating, I can eat later. Let me just, I'll just pop a piece of candy in my mouth and just keep going type of thing. So, and it's not till we've reached the end of our rope when we're literally about to collapse and pass out. Do we say anything or do anything? And even then we just kind of, chop it up to that's the profession I'm in. That's how it goes. We even have like inside nurse jokes to say like, Hey, that's just how it is. You know, we've learned to accept these things as if this is okay. This is a profession deal with it. And so during, and I'll say this during the pandemic, especially when I've worked as working, you know, in the ERs and ICUs, more patients, less staff, less resources. So by the time I got home, I really didn't have much to give, but then I also still had a family. So we know that nursing is a predominantly woman's profession. Many of the people who in our profession have other family members that they have to care for. So I'm caring for people at work. I'm caring for people at home. When do I care for myself? Exactly. Exactly. And that's why, that's why for my nurses, I was making sure mandatory. I was making it mandatory that they see me once a week and if need be twice a week. Because that is their time. The session is for them. It's their time to kind of figure out their own self-care needs and not just get the basic needs met. But yeah, I I had to like constantly assess their eating, their nutritional, their nutritional value, making sure they're not just popping a piece of candy. That happens. That's actually what goes on. And I mean, it was very imperative for me to making sure that I was max trying to maximize their optimum health based on their work situation. So you were working with healthcare professionals. Just curious, were these healthcare professionals who reached out to you for services or did you have like a relationship with a hospital where they actually had you as a resource for their staff? Because I'm just curious because where I worked, we didn't have that. We didn't have like, here's a psychotherapist or here's someone you can talk to during these times. It was always kind of employee assistance programs available if you need it. 
So I'm just curious, did you see that or were, they, were these individuals reaching out to you? These, these are people that work closely with uh, insurance companies. I have one insurance company that I completely uh, have a very good relationship with who is contracted with a major hospital down here. And they filtrated, they referred a lot of their uh, nursing staff to me and they usually would call me the first responders would call to get an appointment, but yeah, it to come contracted with, you know, uh, insurance companies that know kind of like the main source of my practices and they then are able to refer the client to me that reaches out. But yeah, it's really the first responder reaching out, knowing that there's, there's an issue is assessing that I can't do this by myself. I need some support. I need someone to talk to about this. And them making the phone call either to their insurance provider to provide the resources or directly. So I love that you're available as a resource. And I just, I guess my light bulbs were going off as you were talking because hindsight's always 2020. But I was thinking, wow, you know what? We and it's kind of segue into my next question, but sometimes you don't know what you don't know. So there may have been red flags that I should have reached out to you a long time ago, but I don't get to you till my, the end of my rope. How wonderful nurses and whoever else is listening, especially nurse managers, directors, this is a Ding, ding, ding. Listen to this. How awesome would it be that, you know, as you're hiring people and you, you talk about all your oh, 401, 403B or all these other packages that, hey, we have psychotherapists or mental health services readily available 24-7 for our nurses when they need it. How amazing would that be to be able to come to work and know that there is a resource readily available? Because although we were in a pandemic, so we kind of, we knew that this is going on, but there are traumatic things that happen all the time, left and right. You might be witness something, you know, massive gun shooting. And, you know, I think having a resource like you is so important to have because you don't necessarily know when you're going to have that moment where you break down because the stress is so heavy. And this kind of segues into my next question, because we've had a growing nursing shortage. We've had a nursing shortage even before the pandemic. The pandemic kind of shined this light on the shortage. And then it created a work environment that exacerbated people wanting to leave the bedside. And, you know, we have nurses now who have left to do other things. And we have a lot of nurses who are currently like on the fence about it. And we have people worried like, oh my gosh, am I choosing the right professions to enter? And I'll speak for the nurses who are in the middle who are still there, but feeling overwhelmed. They love being a nurse. It's a lot. It's really heavy. They consider leaving, but they feel guilty if they leave. So there's like this guilt, like I'm still here because I don't want to leave my patients. I don't want to leave my coworkers stranding. Can you help us better understand this guilt or this feeling that we're feeling that prevents us? I'm not, okay. Well, first I'm not, I'm not telling anyone to leave the bedside. Let me just be clear. But sometimes when we are, maybe it's the environment that you're in. Sometimes we're in a very, what could be a toxic, unhealthy work environment but we don't leave because we have this sense of guilt for leaving. So can you help us better understand what, what is that feeling? Why am I feeling that? Uh, because you're a caregiver. And, you know, when you're a caregiver in whatever sphere that you're at, whether you're caregiving for your parents or you're caregiving for your children or you're caregiving for your patients, when you decide not to do that, that is the takeaway that you feel. You feel like, okay, I've decided not to do that, or I'm not doing that anymore. There is a sense of guilt and I should probably not think of myself and my own health. So yes, a sense of guilt does come over. 
what I'm finding it is a disconnect with bedside nurses and managers and at hospital administrations, that there's a disconnect in that sphere. I think if we had more support with hospital administrations, focusing on the needs of the nurse and their own mental health, instead of like punching numbers and making sure the finances are in order, making sure that your nurse's mental health are in check, there needs to be a more of a connection for the hospital administration and the bedside nurses, managers, directors, you know, what have you. I think that's really, really important. That's where, that's the disconnect that I see. But yes, regardless of you, if you are a caregiver and you decide to take it upon yourself to take care of yourself or do what you need to do for whatever reasons you need to do to leave the profession, there's a sense of guilt and a feeling of abandonment that you're leaving your patients high and dry. The need for yourself is stronger and, you know, making sure that you're not going down a rabbit hole is stronger. And therefore that's the decision becomes a little bit more clear of what you need to do. Right. When we get to that point, it's because so many things have already gone unchecked. We've ignored so many red flags along the way and like, we're just ready to bail, but there's this guilt feeling. So I like how you mentioned that we need to really address the needs of the nurse or the caregiver early on. So I definitely think having uh, speaking to someone like yourself early on when things start to happen to help us process and understand and also help empower the caregiver to recognize when they might need help, when they might need a break, because, you know, we, we love caring for people. And whether you're a nurse in the hospital or you're someone who's taking care of your elderly mom or grandmother at home, at some point, you're going to need a break to fill your own cup up. It's like when the air masks fall, put your mask on first so then you can help others. And it's when we don't fill our own cup, we can't pour from an empty cup, guys. We just can't. But sometimes it, w- it would be nice if a nurse manager or nurse director would say, hey, you're having a hard day. And, you know, I am contracted with law enforcement agencies and cities. I have contracts with them, you know, so they do it. They understand the need of having somebody in their back pocket as a mental health professional. And when they call, when they call me, I know I need to call them back. There's no, I mean, I call everybody back, but when they call me, my my law enforcement calls me and I'm contracted with them. It's a need and I need, I need to get back to them. So why not have hospitals or, you know, agencies understand the need, the mental health needs of their staff of nurses and their caregivers contract with mental health professionals. There's no more stigma right with this. I mean, with my nurses, they need it the most. They need it the most because they're they're doing so much and they're seeing so much and they're feeling so much. Catching it early on, it's not something that they're going to do. They may need to be pointed out to them. Yes. It's like a wellness visit. Like you go for your wellness visit to make sure everything's still going okay. I wish more of us would look at our mental health that way too. Don't wait till there's a problem or an issue. You should, you know, do a check-in. I think it's always healthy to talk about your feelings, what you're experiencing, you know, just to make sure that, you know, that everything's okay. And, you know, it helps you with problem solving. It can help you with communication and it can really just add value to your life. Don't necessarily wait. And hospital administrators, for those who are listening, please take notes. And if you're a staff nurse, please share this podcast with your healthcare administration because this is something that can be instrumental, not only in helping to preserve, you know, your your staff's well-being, 
but also serve as an intervention to help deter, delay this nursing shortage that they're experiencing. Because listen, when you when your put back is up against the wall, you're just going to jump ship. And I know that we can't have everybody jump ship because we need nurses and other healthcare professionals. So as we're having this discussion, recognizing the things that I need as the nurse or recognizing the red flags, sometimes I feel like I'll recognize things on the unit or in my workplace that could be done better or would it be, you know, very beneficial for the nurses. But especially in this time of crunch, when they're just looking for FTEs to fill in the staffing gaps, I don't always feel empowered to say something. And so I tolerate unhappy and unhealthy work conditions. Can you help me better understand why some of us are like that? Because I'll be honest, sometimes the whole unit is buzzing around like, we need this and we need that. And yeah, somebody, you know, but at the staff meeting, nobody wants to speak up. And then when they do speak up, it's always that one person who then gets labeled as like the troublemaker. The complainer. Yeah. Okay. So in, in entrepreneurship or business, you identify a problem. You can't just continuously identify problems. You have to identify the solution with the problem. If you are going to come to your administrator as a nurse, before you even do, think of the problem, think of some solutions, brainstorm with yourself before presenting it. Because if you don't present the solutions, the viable solutions, then you're just going to be looking at somebody who just constantly brings up problems. That's why people, not just in the nursing field, but people in organizations and businesses, when they do bring up a problem and not a solution to the problem, they're labeled as complainers. And it's it gets, they get a bad rap. Don't fall into that trap of just presenting the issues. There's issues. There's problems everywhere, and particularly in the nursing field. Come to the table, forward thinking about some solutions and some ideas to brainstorm with your administration, your nurse manager, so there can be an exchange, a conversation, a flow, almost like a, a plan of attack, if you will. That's actually really good. And nurses, if I could just kind of translate this to something that we, we very commonly experience, let's say your patient's deteriorating, let's say their blood pressure is dropping, whatever reason, and you have to call the provider and you know, you're going to let the provider know the blood pressure is dropping, but in the back of your mind, before you make that phone call, you should have in the back of your mind, some interventions that you think would be helpful. So as a provider is saying, giving um, orders, you have in the back of your mind about, well, well, what about this? What about that? Because, you know, you're going to do that for the blood pressure. So if the physician just says, oh, you know, give uh, a liter of normal saline, but in the back of your mind, you know that the patient is there for like a GI bleed. Like, do you want to check lab? Do you want to check a, C- a CBC also while we're doing that? Or, you know, so have ideas, interventions in the back of your mind, have a few, right? And then, you know, like Dr. Michelle was saying, you now can then engage in a conversation about how to improve the situation. And again, it's not like management versus bedside nurses. We are all in this together. We all have a common goal to create a work environment where the nurses are happy and the patients are safe. End of the day, that's really what we want to do. Now, Dr. Michelle, while I have you here, I want to segue a little bit to another topic that nurses often find ourselves in is, you know, working in healthcare, really working hard, not a lot of resources, feeling underappreciated. So it's kind of created the things that we've just talked about, but we also get exposed to a lot of violence. I don't know that this has received a lot of press during this pandemic, but people were very upset. They were irate. I can't see my family. You know, I don't want these vaccines. I don't want to wear a mask. So we were actually getting hit with a lot of these things. So violence can come in, you know, verbal, mental, emotional, physical ways and from strangers. And 
you know, unfortunately, sometimes this can get very physical. I've had things thrown at me. I've had people swing at me. I've had, you know, words and bodily fluids, all kinds of things. And I'm just ducking and dodging like, oh my gosh, and just trying to keep safe. But we often attribute it to some type of medical issue, psychological emergency or chemical imbalance. We chop it up to, you know, something's wrong with the patient. They, they know not what they do type of thing. And we tolerate this as a part of the job. And while sometimes I'll use, like if someone's on meth, I obviously know that meth is leading to this, but sometimes I don't really know what it is. There's other things going on, but either way, whatever the cause is, I don't like it. I don't like being subjected to it. So I want to know more about how do I handle this? Because we're not pressing charges on people if we get hit, kicked, or punched because we're saying, oh, there's a medical issue. But in any other field or profession, have you done something like that? Someone's getting charges pressed on them. But we as nurses and mostly women, again, we feel vulnerable. We don't feel protected. So what can we as health professionals do to better take care of ourselves when things like this happen? Because these leave mental and emotional, sometimes physical marks on us for a while. Right, 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 right. Absolutely. I think one of the things that we have to be now more than ever, not just dealing with the patient, but also their family members during the pandemic is when when you're dealing with a, a patient becoming super aware of their verbal and nonverbal communication because behavior is very unpredictable. So you just never know position yourself in a room in a certain way where you never have your back turned. You're always in sight of the patient. So you're seeing what they're doing and a lot of nurses chart with the back toward the patient. Always have your eye on the patient, regardless of the diagnosis, the condition, what have you. Because not only because you are, are assessing their condition, you're assessing your safety as well. So don't have your eyes too far between um, not having your eyes on the patient and making, and, you know, be, your senses when you walk into a room have to be astute and sharp, all your senses. This is what makes it hard for nurses because they're, they're accessing so many different vices. They're, they have to be, they have to think, they have to think on their feet in terms of intervention and medical treatments. They have to be vigilant with their surroundings. They have to be, there's so many things going on when you walk into a patient's room, super hard, super hard to tap into all those things that are necessary to tap into, but don't have your eyes off the patient that long because you just don't know if your back is turned, you know, what could happen. That is one thing that I've heard. Actually, I went out with some friends and one of our girlfriends works in law enforcement. She's like, and she never sits with her back like to the door. She like, she like, she wants to see everything. She's like, I got to see everything that's coming in. So that makes perfect sense. And I'm going to also add being mindful of the tone or language, body language, like someone's arms crossed, pacing, those type of things. And, you know, and nurses, I know it's hard. You are being spread so thin with so many patients, but your safety comes first. Your safety comes first. If you feel unsafe, if you feel unsafe, regardless if there has been uh, something that has happened, just a feeling that you feel, say, speak it up, speak it up. And if anything happens, definitely say it, speak it, do an incident report. I mean, just document, document, document as much as you can, particularly if an incident does happen. Or if there is a feeling of being like uh, like an unnerving feeling of just uncomfortability and unsafe, let the administration know that that could be turned into a problem. 
that gut feeling. That, that gut speaking. instincts. And nurses, nurses that, you know, are in the caregiving field, you know, that particularly, you know, women and that are mothers, they have, they have kind of an the instinct. They have, the, they have a, they have a gut. Don't ignore it. Tap into it. Don't make excuses for what you're feeling. Don't make it, don't say, oh, it'll just, it'll just, this is just going to pass. No, tap into it because your gut will never leave you the wrong way. It'll never lead you down a wrong road. Right. I think that's so good. And, you know, you guys make sure you bring that up in the staff meeting because just because the actual act of violence didn't happen, but it looked like the stakes were high, things were edgy. Talk about it because maybe there's something you can do to, you know, get in a state of readiness or preparedness of what would happen, what would you do if this happened? Or how can we maybe change the way patients flow through the emergency room to prevent things from happening? So, you know, it's important to talk about these things because, you guys, we are subjected to a lot of violence, verbal abuse and things like that. And we kind of dismiss it and we shouldn't, we shouldn't. We really need to, even the small things that you're so used to, like, oh, someone spit on me. Okay, well, they didn't really get me, but, you know, but just be mindful of that. Even though you might say, oh, it's just spit. It's spit now. It might be something later. And, you know, it's still, that is, I know it's going to sound silly, but that is a form of abuse or violence, like spitting on someone, like we shouldn't tolerate those things to think that it's okay and dismiss it. So thank you for sharing those things with us, Dr. Michelle. Now I've had you for so much time already. I know you're super busy, but as we round out this interview, because you've been such a wealth of information, knowledge, and I'm sure people are going to want to tap into you as a resource, especially those who live in Florida, who can really actually maybe bring you to their hospital and chat with you. Can you tell us more about where our listeners can find you, follow you? And, you know, if you have anything that's that's happening right now that we can be a part of, let us know. What are those things? So right now, the best way to contact me would be on my would be on my website. And also, you know, people call me, you know, that are wanting to get into therapy and even municipalities call me. Oh, I call everybody back, everybody back. I create space. There's a lot of therapists that don't do that. I feel like that's a big disadvantage because making that call is the hardest call to make. So you can just call me and I, I will not answer. So just leave a message. I will call you back. It might not be extremely like the next day, but I have a day designated to call all my people back the same week. I can be reached. My website is www.drmichellefinneran.com. On the website, there's a, there's a place that you, I can be contacted on. You can send me an email or a text, a message through my website, which I will get. On my website, there's, a, there's an email. You can contact me through that. I mean, there's different venues that you can contact me on. I will um, submit to you all the platforms that I'm on. So you can put it in your notes or so that you can discuss, so you can have it there. So people can either follow me or contact me or consult with me, whatever the case may be. Wonderful. And you have a book. Tell us about your book. Okay. It's a little bit outside the scope of what we're talking about, but in this pandemic, there's there's been a, a big rise in alcoholism and d- drug dependency, domestic violence, and suicide. So I did a book during this pandemic called Surviving Domestic Abuse, Formal and Informal Supports and Services. And what I'm looking at, I'm looking at, uh, I did a, a qualitative research academic study on domestic violence survivors, survivors that have been out of a domestic violence uh, abusive relationship for a year or more. And I talk to them and I try to facilitate what kinds of um, resources that they use, formal supports, meaning our professionals, our law enforcement, mental health therapists, our clergy, our judicial system, 
and informal support, such as family, friends, neighbors, uh, co-workers, bosses. And I asked them and assessed in a 90-minute interview, collected data, figuring out what was the most effective form of support that they received and what was not effective um, when, di- when utilizing formal and informal supports to abolish their abusive relationship. Got it. Wonderful. No, thank you. I mean, I know that wasn't the exact topic we talked about today, but still, you're such a person of, of resources that we want to tap into. So um, you guys, if, when you do have the chance, please visit her website. I've actually been to her website. You can see uh, there's more information about her, her book, and actually her links to her social media and things are on there too. And you have, there's a blog uh, link there. So, so much great information to make sure to visit her website. So Dr. Michelle, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. These are things we should be talking to our psychotherapist or mental health worker more often, not just when there's an issue, but to raise awareness of things that are going on. Cause we might have an issue and don't even know there's an issue. Yes. And you know what, in, in the sphere of anything, but self-care, this is about self-care. Yes. self-care. I mean, there's, there's no stigma anymore. This is self-care. This is you're taking care of yourself. You're taking steps forward to caretake for yourself when you reach out for support. So And this support, that's your time. That's your time for you. And a lot of caregivers don't have that time. They don't have a devoted time just for them to make it about them. And how important it is for your own self-care to have that implemented in your life as you caregive. Absolutely, guys. And it's more than just your sleep time. Sleeping is sleep, but you should have time outside of your sleep time for self-care, just in case some of you are like, well, I do sleep. I need some awake time. I need some of your awake time to be dedicated to yourself, to fill your cup, guys. You, In order to care for others, you have to first take care of yourself. So Dr. Michelle, thank you so much. Um, I thank you. Nurse.org thanks you. And guys, you you know, this was, a, this was a great interview. So make sure to pay it forward. Share it with a classmate, a colleague, a coworker, a caregiver, a family member, because this is a This is a topic that transcends everyone. You don't have to be a nurse to listen to this. Anyone in any profession, caregivers at home, this is really important that they hear this. And we need to hear it because we need to be reminded. Don't assume that, oh, we we know. We need to listen to this because when you listen to this, it'll be a nice, gentle reminder that, hey, I really need to take better care of myself. And all it can start with just talking to someone. You have your, you know, you go for your regular annual wellness appointments and things like that, or when things are, are problems. But let's let's do the same for our mental health. Let's take a proactive stance on trying to be happier and healthier and making sure that your mental state is included in this. So thank you for listening so much to the podcast. I'm Nurse Alice. I love, love, love talking to everyone uh, about important health and wellness issues, things about our profession, of course. But even as healthcare professionals, we're consumers of healthcare as well. So it's important that we remind ourselves about important things like this. You can follow me on all things social at Ask Nurse Alice if you want to have a comment for the show or have a suggestion for a different show, please make sure to email me at nursealice at nurse.org and make sure, as I said, share the podcast with someone and leave a rating and a review. Love to hear what you think. And those ratings and reviews mean a lot to me, guys. It helps me know that we're on the right track and it helps boost us up in the searches for other people to find the show. So thank you again so much. And as we round out the show, I want to remind everyone to please Make good choices, be kind to one another, and live well, my friends. Thanks for listening to Ask Nurse Alice. Visit nurse.org for nursing career, education, and community resources.